welcome to Awaken Podcast. I hope you enjoy the teaching. Hello, everybody. Uh, my name's Eric. Uh, today, as we uh, start to celebrate Advent, we're talking about hope. So I'm going to read a little something I wrote. The word hope is meaningful to me because I am just a man. My wife and I will be married three years this February. We don't have any children yet, just a dog and a cat we refer to as our babies. Babies that jump on the bed with kitty litter on their paws or who eat snotty Kleenex out of the bathroom garbage. We hope for real children, and we hope things for our children someday. We talk about our firstborn all the time. She'll be a girl with my brown hair and Renee's blue eyes. When she's a baby, she'll get up early with me and help cook pancakes on Sunday while her mom sleeps in. On rainy spring afternoons, we'll lay on the couch and watch old samurai movies together until we fall asleep. She'll love to read, but it will get her into trouble when I find out she's been sneaking a flashlight into her room so she can read The Hobbit well past midnight. I'll get frustrated with her when she gets stubborn like her mother, and I'll get frustrated with myself when I can't tell her no. She'll learn the value of discipline when she realizes playing the cello isn't really that easy, and she'll make us really proud when she writes her first song. It will take her three tries to pass her driver's test, but it will turn her into a more careful driver, which will make me happy. She will be absolutely, positively, uh, have no interest in boys until she is 18. And she will not follow her date under the bleachers at prom. When her first boyfriend breaks her heart, she will find a strength inside of herself that she had not known before. And she will decide there's no use in loving someone if you don't love them with your whole heart. In college, she'll finally understand how her mother learned to drink black coffee. She'll learn the perf that perfection isn't all it's cracked up to be, that sometimes busy work gets you the A, and that roommates will eat your food, but they ain't going to do the dishes. She'll realize she's been living her parents' faith and decide to make it her own. She'll emerge from college not as the mighty woman holding a torch, but as one of the tired, the poor, the huddled masses yearning to breathe free. She will spend a year waiting tables, and after that, she will always tip too much. She'll learn to read for pleasure again, and she'll meet her husband in the bookstore in the fantasy section. He'll take her for granted once, and she'll leave him, but take him back when he learns his lesson. And at their wedding, she'll tease me for being bald. She will look so beautiful on the dance floor. I hope all these things for her and better. I say hope because they're not guaranteed. I can struggle to give her these things, but I am just one man in a world that wants to take my daughter and make her in its own image, an image of pain, regret, addiction, brokenness, and slavery. I am just a man. Where does my hope come from? It comes from Jesus. He alone is able to do immeasurably more than all I ask. There is no hope without struggle. I will struggle for my daughter, but I will hope for Jesus. I'm Renee, I'm Eric's wife. Um, today, my art is expressing the word hope. I did a relief print, which is where you actually carve out a really large piece of wood by hand, and then you ink up what's called the plate. And then using a big printing press, you press the image onto paper. So it's a door for those of you who might not know. Um, 
when I was reading about this and preparing for what I was going to make, I was trying to think of a non-cheesy thing to make that represented hope. And I just kept coming back to the idea of when I was a kid, I was really afraid of the dark. And so bedtime was always a battle. And I would be in bed, and sometimes I would just get so stressed, and I would call out for my mom. And I always knew that when I saw that light in the hallway, I was like, she's coming. Like, and that like was my first thought of hope and what that really meant. And now I'm grown and I'm married and I have um, my own life. But now instead of calling out for my mom, I think about in those dark times of my life, I'm calling out to Christ and he is my hope now. So today we invite you to celebrate the arrival of hope. Very, very cool stuff. We uh, <coughs> sometimes creative things fall out of the uh, fall out of the sky. Uh, ben and Toff and I we meet weekly, and we were having one of our nondescript uh, weekly meetings at at Ben's house, and had no plans of kind of thinking about what we might do for Advent. And this idea of commissioning five of our writers and five of our artists to create uh, something for Advent, and so each week we'll be unveiling uh, a new piece of art and a new writing from one of our writers. Uh, just kind of all fell out of the sky. So uh, super, super excited. And uh, the frames, by the way, if you don't know John, John and Isa, uh, John's building all the frames for these. So they're, uh, they're exquisite, uh, amazing. So thank you guys for kicking it off. Really appreciate it. Um, so this is kind of our, our, uh, our retweaking of Advent. Uh, some of you may have grown up in churches or settings where there was some liturgy around Advent, uh, whether it be readings or scriptures or things uh, at Awaken. As you can see, we do things a little differently, um, just based on where we are. Uh, welcome to the joke joint, everybody. Uh, so this is kind of our version of Advent liturgy, and so I'm really excited about what will come over the next couple weeks. So writers, writings from our writers and art from our artists, and, and then stories of, uh, we're going to take a break from the Eat This Book series, and we're going to be looking at just five different stories of hope and peace and joy and love and then life on Christmas Eve, which I'm really excited about. My wife's involved in that. She's, she's freaking out. <laughs> but don't tell her I said that, okay? We'll have, to re- we'll have to put the first version on the podcast. Not that she listens to me on the podcast. Let's be honest about that, right? You know? <laughs> okay, then. Uh, Mark chapter 5. We're going to be looking at Mark chapter 5. So if you would uh, stand, and I'd like to read starting in verse 21 from Mark's gospel. It says this. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake... A large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and spent all that she had, yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak, because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped, and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized the power that had gone out from him, and he turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you can ask, who touched your clothes? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. And then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. While Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. 
Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Overhearing what they said, Jesus told them, don't be afraid, just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, and the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly, and he went in and said to them, Why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. They laughed at him. After he put them all out, he took, out, took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and he said to her, Talitha kom, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. And at this they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders to not let anybody know about this and told them to give her something to eat. Pray with me if you would please. God, as we uh, open up this story in these scriptures, I pray that uh, you would, uh, as we think about Advent, we anticipate this thing that's coming. Uh, We look at these words of hope and joy and peace and love. God, I pray that you might be uh, near to us. Uh, The whole idea of Christmas, of God coming to be with us, that That might be something that we reflect on in the past, but also, God, I pray that it might be something that we experience in the present, uh, maybe even today. We pray in your name. God's people said, amen. You can have a seat. So a couple of uh, just literary and theological notes uh, in the book of Mark. Uh, You know that there there are four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, And each one of, and this is an example, I think, of, of, Each of the writers, when they write the story of Jesus and they tell the story of Jesus, often they do so with a particular agenda. They do it from a perspective and with a purpose. So, for example, the book of Matthew, uh, as you read it, you begin to wonder, like, why the lineage at the beginning of the story? Why all these people connected to the, the, the history of Israel? Matthew's writing to Jewish people, for the most part. His audience is primarily Jews. Mark, on the other hand, is writing to a very different audience. He's writing to a group of people who many call God-fearers. These are folks who maybe knew the story of Israel, knew about the Exodus and this people group who God had somehow miraculously saved and the whole parting of the Red Sea. They might know some of these things about the story, and they're interested in this God of Israel, but they weren't necessarily Jewish by birth. So Mark writes a a different story, so to speak, or for different purposes. And this particular uh, section that we just read highlights what um, commentators call a Mark sandwich. Mark often will start a story... And then he'll interject, like with no warning, no, um, uh, you know, no reason, it, it seems, he'll just stop. Did anybody notice, like we're going down this road with Jairus and the whole synagogue deal, and then all of a sudden it just shifted gears and went in a different direction. Classic Mark, he does this often. So he'll start a story, and then he'll have a whole story in the, in the middle, and then he'll finish the story. Think about the story of the fig tree. Jesus, the disciples are walking up to the temple. There's this whole fig tree discur- uh, discourse and dialogue. They go to the temple, Jesus, you know, sends everybody out of the temple, they come back and they find the fig tree withered and he explains it, right? It's a Mark sandwich. When Mark does this, um, he's not doing it just by happenstance. Like, for example, I think it's John has the, the, the tearing down or the, the casting out of the folks in the temple and the fig tree totally in separate uh, occurrences in different parts of, this, of the book. Mark's doing something very specific. And what he wants us to do is connect the two stories and have one story kind of play off of the other and interpret and critique and speak into the other story. So you have Jairus, 
this synagogue leader whose daughter is sick. Then you have this woman who's been bleeding for 12 years. Did anybody catch the reference to 12 in both stories, by the way? There aren't a lot of people who talk about this because it's a bit, you know, conjecture. But I think Mark's doing something specific with Jesus connected to Israel, 12 tribes of Israel, Jesus as kind of this new Israel or this fulfillment of Israel's vocation and life in the world. That's my own, you know, side story uh, discourse there. That's free. Okay. So you have this Jairus, then you have this woman, and then you have Jairus again. Uh, hope, we're going to look at this this morning. Hope, uh, I went on the internets, the Googles, and did some research for you. Uh, hope is a transitive verb, in case you didn't know that, transitive verb. Uh, and it means to desire with expectation of obtainment, or to expect with confidence. So hope is this weighty kind of idea that's sort of laden with, it's, it's something that, is uh, longed for or, or hoped for, uh, expected, but it's not just something like, I wish for something to happen. It has this confidence that it will actually be obtained or this confidence that it, will, that it is true, that what I hope in will actually come to fruition. So hope is a little bit different than I wish for this to happen. So what does this story, Jairus, this woman and Jairus, what does this story have to do with hope or what does this story or these stories teach us about hope? Get there in just a moment. Freshman in college, I went to Colorado Christian University out in Denver. Uh, showed up. Uh, I didn't really like school, uh, and, I, and I and I sort of did high school uh, and did enough to get by. Three point something, you know, two. That's just enough to not get a C. Uh, not a lot of work. Didn't do a lot of reading. But I show up at, in college and. Uh, I took um, freshman year, like philosophy, introduction to philosophy. I remember the book, you know, it's like blue, white, and pink. I remember the whole deal, intro to philosophy. And I was in way over my head at this point as far as like what we were reading and what we were studying. I had no interest in this kind of stuff. I went to Colorado to go fly fishing and to do youth ministry stuff. So the whole philosophy bit, you know, okay, I have to take that class, fine. Who else is taking it? Some of my friends, done. So I made an introduction to philosophy, and I come upon this guy that I actually really, uh, I like. Uh, I'll tell you why. His, his name was Heraclitus. Does anybody remember Heraclitus, the philosopher? Bueller? Bueller? <laughs> no. Okay, great. Let me tell you a little bit about Heraclitus. Uh, he said something, and this is why I love this guy. He said, you can never step in the same river twice. Bam! I love fly fishing. You know, Brad Pitt, you know, the river runs through it. I'm like, this guy likes rivers. He's my favorite philosopher. I got a C in that class. Um, so he says you can never step in the same river twice. Now, what Heraclitus was getting at is that the world that we live in is in a constant state of flux. It's in a constant state of change. So even something that appears to be static, Heraclitus would say that it's actually... It's, it's in motion, it's movement, it's energy. Now, this is bizarro when you think about it. This guy lived from like 500 BC before Jesus. Plato and the others came after him. And back then, he was, he was kind of uh, like intuiting the things that we know now to be true by you know, our study of science and physics and subatomic particles, that the world that we live in is actually in motion, almost all of it. Now, he also said something uh, and it goes like this. We must realize that war is universal and at all things come into being and pass away through strife. So most philosophers at that time, Greek philosophers, they're zooming out 
asking questions about like what's real, how do we know what's the essence of the soul, how do we know like what is all of this, and how do we know it's not some sort of like you know matrixy version of a dream or like these are the questions that philosophers are asking these big you know existential questions. Most of them, Plato think forms in the allegory of the cave. <coughs> Excuse me. They're zooming out. Heraclitus zooms right in, and he says essentially that everything around us, that there is this constant state of struggle and conflict and strife. So this idea of war, like we must realize war is universal. What he's saying is that everything is born and dies through this process of struggle and strife. That all around us, everything is heading towards death and decay. I think Einstein maybe said something later on about entropy, right? It's all entropy. It's all breaking down. It's all disintegrating, okay? Any Switchfoot fans out there? Breaking down, breaking down, I pledge allegiance. Okay. Everything is breaking down, he said. So, and friends, think about this. The world that we live in, based on our experience of the world, he's right. Everything's breaking down. It's all heading towards death and decay. Based on our experience of the world, I think Heraclitus totally nails it. It's all heading through like struggle and strife and decay on every level. Think about human, ecological, political, the animal kingdom. It's all breaking down, right? Now, you might be sitting here thinking, this is all very interesting, Micah. Thank you for letting us in on your philosophy class of, of your freshman year of college. But what does it have to do with Jairus and this woman? I would argue everything. If Heraclitus is right about the world that we find, and our experience of the world, just based on our relationships and death and disease and the things that we have experienced. I mean, if we opened it up and just like, had a little open mic time, you know, let's, let's all be honest for a second. The stories that we would hear are often very hard and very, they're filled with struggle and strife. If Heraclitus is right, then what we find in the scriptures, in these two stories, and I would submit to you throughout the entirety of the scripture, is a totally counterintuitive and different, often maybe you, you could even say subversive idea or story that's being told. Both Jairus and this woman who's bleeding find themselves smack dab in the middle of this world that Heraclitus is describing, breaking down, everything's death and decay, it's all moving in that direction. But both of these people show this desire, this desire with expectation of fulfillment and exemplify hope in a different reality. Hope in a different story. What do we learn about hope from these two? I would submit that there's a commitment to an alternative story. That there is a commitment to a different tale being told. Uh, some of you know, a couple last Christmas actually, uh, my wife gave me, and that's code word for, I ordered online and told her about it, and she's like, okay, cool, uh, for Christmas, uh, a home brewing kit. So uh, I, I got this kit uh, to br brew my own beer at home. Now, I've been doing this for a little while, and uh, I've got, I don't know, 30 or so batches underneath my belt here. You know, I'm becoming a master. I'm not. I'm, I'm not, really. Um, but I had this chance. Actually, these guys are right here. I, they weren't in the first gathering. But uh, I, I married folks. I'm a pastor, right? I do this often where I show up and, you know, have my Bible and may the Lord be with you, bless you and keep you. I pronounce you husband and wife. You can kiss your bride. I do this often, right? But this is the first time somebody's like, hey, would you perform our, our wedding ceremony and would you bring the beer? <laughs> and I'm like, hey, 
Jesus, first miracle, water to wine. Pastor guy brings a, this, this has got some life to it, right? Like, like this thing, take this thing on the road, maybe. So I, I, I brew the beer for the wedding, and, uh, and one of them turned out, I mean, it was pretty awesome. I'll be honest with you. It was a really good batch. And, and so people are coming up, and they're drinking this beer, and they're like, hey, where can, like, who brewed this beer? Like, what brewery is this from? Where can I get it? And they're like, well, uh, actually, the pastor made it. <laughs> okay, cool. It's really good. Let him know I said so. So people are asking, like, what's, where's this brewery? And then somebody's like, you should, what's the name of your brewery? And I'm like, oh, no, 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 okay, okay, this, like, you've got, your, your version of this is way, way past. It's like five-gallon buckets in my basement. It's nothing. They're like, you should name your brewery. Well, so then I started thinking, you know, somebody says something like that, you're kind of like, hey, yeah, maybe I should name my brewery, right? <laughs> so I'm thinking, well, what would I name this thing if I ever, you know, named it? Okay, I love white pines. You know the white pine tree? Have you ever seen a white pine? You guys know what they look like? I'll break it down for you. Um, they, white pines, it's like a giant bonsai tree. I mean, they're huge. They're humongous. But no, no white pine looks like another white pine. They're all very, very unique. And oftentimes when you find a white pine, it's like it'll stand alone among the forest. It's like this, you know, iconic, you know, emblem on this, you know, the scape of the forest where it's like it stands strong like I have seen it all. I have weathered the test of time and rain and snow and it all. And here I stand you know, this iconic, you know, statement about, ah, that's how I interpret the white pine. So I'm like, white pine brewing. You know, it's kind of got a story. It's connecting. I like it or whatever. So I'm like, white pine brewing it is. So I get the Twitter feed. I get the whole deal. You could go, like, white pine brewing on Twitter. That's it. Uh, well, then Toff's working on a logo because every, you know, every good thing needs a logo. So he gets online, and he's, like, looking, you know, like, types in white pine and beer. Do you want to know what comes up? White Pine Brewing. Some guy in Nevada is already doing it. Now, most people, when they start a business or they're going to name something, they would research those kinds of things. I didn't. So some schlep in Nevada has already got the idea, and uh, he seems to be really into it. So now I'm, in, now, now I'm in a real conundrum, right? So I'm thinking, I'm, I'm, and I'm getting to the point here, I'm getting to the point here. I'm thinking about, like, okay, wh what could I, like, what, you know, just out of the blue, like, what would I name this thing? And I'm thinking, and I'm reading about this story, and, and, you know, Mark, and I'm, you know, kind of prepping for this whole deal. And I come across this idea of, you know what, there's always two tales being told. Which I was like, bazingo, that's a, that's a good one for the sermon, right? But then I was like, Two tails brewing. That's that dog will hunt. So it could be the new name. But here's my point. There are there not two tales being told. I mean, think about best book you've ever read, best movie you've ever seen, Matrix, Lord of the Rings, Star Wars. One could argue even Sleepless in Seattle. Two <laughs> wait for it. Worked on that one all week. Practice the delivery and everything. That was flawless. <laughs> Two tales being told, aren't there? Think about the scriptures. We've been studying the Old Testament. Think about the story of the Exodus. Egypt, Israel, exile, Canaan. Cain, Abel, Joseph, his brothers. There's two stories being told, always. 
I want to suggest that in this story of Jairus and this woman, we see this commitment to a completely alternative story. I mean, think, okay, Heraclitus, if he's right, that the world that we live in, it's this struggle, you know, this process of disintegration. This is a world where little girls die. It's a, it's a world where people are ostracized from their community for whatever particular ailment they have. It's a, it's a world where people get cancer and MS and leukemia. It's a world where things are decaying. And if all of this is true, then Dave Matthews got it right. Like, eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow we die, right? Because we're tripping billies. <laughs> it's college, but... If you've ever seen Dave, you know what I mean. If, if Heraclitus is right, if he's right, then, then Dave Matthews sings, he nails it. Eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow we die. But the scriptures raise up these two people in Mark, Jairus and this woman, and I would submit to you throughout the whole story of the scriptures, raises up groups of people and, and individuals who make the bold and audacious claim and have an unwavering hope, a commitment that is anticipated or, or a future that does not end in death, but rather has a different possible outcome. And they raise up these people, and the faith that Jesus is the one who brings about this possibility, that Jesus is the payout on the hope for God's people. If these people have a hope, this unwavering commitment to something, right, something that's expected to be obtained, if they have this hope, then this audacious claim of the scriptures is that Jesus is the payout. Jesus is the end, the telos of the hope of God's people. I want to read this quote from C.S. Lewis because... Uh, you know, I goof around a lot, and I joke, and it's, it's, it's fun, and I have, I have serious moments, but this, like, nails it. C.S. Lewis says this, most people, if they had really learned to look into their own hearts, would know that they do want, and want acutely, something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promise. At present, we are on the outside, on the wrong side of the door. We discern the freshness and the purity of morning, but they do not make us fresh and pure. We cannot mingle with the pleasures we see, but all of the pages of the New Testament are rustling with the rumor that it will not always be so. Someday, God willing, we shall get in. We will put on glory, the greater glory of which nature is only the first sketch. We do not want to merely see beauty, though God knows even that beauty is enough. We want something else which can hardly be put into words, to be united with the beauty we see, to pass into it, to receive it into ourselves, to bathe in it, to become a part of it. I love that. The, the story of the New Testament is rustling with the rumor that there is a different tale, that there are two tales being told here. That while our experience might say one thing, that there is another reality being thought of, provoked, talked about, believed in. So certainly from Jairus and this, this woman, we see this commitment to an alternate story, but I would say secondly that, that hope knows no boundaries. Hope knows no boundaries. Um, gang, in this story, I just dropped a piece of gum. 
That would be really bad if I smashed it into the carpet because the carpet's so nice. <laughs> so Mark, when he writes this story, I mean, imagine if you will, just try to like go back. You ever want to just go back? Go back and try to imagine the people that Mark is talking about here, okay? We have a man who is a leader in the synagogue, right? In a town, in a village, there would be a synagogue, and there were usually two people who were a part of the leadership structure in that village. This is one of the leaders of the synagogue. So though one could argue that the New Testament people of God shouldn't be doing worship in the synagogue, they were, and we have a man who is the leader, one of the leaders in the worship of God's people, the worship of Yahweh's people in a very patriarchal society. Okay, are you tracking? We're talking top of the totem pole here, all right? This person has rights. This person has the, the, the uh, possibility of power and authority and of money. And then we have a woman. In a patriarchal culture where women have no rights, they're often thought of as property. They can't vote. Their testimony isn't, worthy in, in, isn't valid in court. And on top of that, we have a woman who's been bleeding for 12 years, now, if you know anything about the Levitical law in the Old Testament, the blood is one of the substances that automatically, immediately makes a person unclean in the worship of Yahweh. So this is why the Good Samaritan story, BTW, is so bah, crazy, right? I mean, the people who are coming from Jericho to Jerusalem, Jericho, Jerusalem, Jericho, Jerusalem, these are Levites, and they're walking along this, this, this road. Who are the Levites? They're the priests in the temple. So these people who come upon this Samaritan who's been beaten bloody and don't want to touch him, not only because he's a half-breed and their enemy, but because he's got blood on him, while they're going to the temple, game, set, match, renders them un useless in, this, in the worship of Yahweh. So you have a woman who's been bleeding for 12 years, and according to the Old Testament law, when someone's been bleeding, either, you know, like monthly, you get what I'm saying, or has some other kind of issue, like this woman does, they're essentially outside of community. They're to be placed outside of until the bleeding stops and then they're welcomed back in by a ceremonial washing and ritual rites that they perform in order to like make them worthy to be a part of the community and worship of Yahweh again. So you have a woman who's been bleeding for 12 years, which means that she's been outside of community for 12 years. Did you go to college? Do you remember going there for the first time? You're like, oh my gosh, I don't have any friends. 12 years. Hopefully, Lord willing, that lasts like a couple of weeks or maybe a semester, the college bit. Do you see what I'm doing here? Do you see what Mark's doing here? We have two people who couldn't be further from one another. Power, possibility. In our culture, right, the, the possibility for power, authority, money, finances, education, all of these things are relegated to a certain group of people. Or the percentages are higher based on what gender, class, race you are, of which I am the chief, right? A white male, if we're honest. What I want to say about hope is that hope knows no boundaries. We have somebody culturally and class-wise and religion-wise and race-wise and gender-wise who is the absolute furthest possible distance away from one another. Jairus and this woman. And Mark just puts them right together. Hope knows no boundaries. Cancer 
It does not discriminate. Right? Whether you have money, power, the world that we live in, according to Heraclitus, if he's onto something, and I think he is, we find two people who couldn't be further from one another, who both, at the end of the day, find themselves in desperate need of something that they cannot do or gain on their own. And the audacious, subversive, earth-shattering claim of the scriptures and of the gospel of Jesus and the story of God is that, in fact, Jesus is the bringer of that thing that we need, regardless of age, gender, class, finance. It's Jesus and Jesus alone that provides the new and distinct possibility for new life and healing that both of these people are desperate for. As we wrap this up, I was thinking about Advent. So we take hope, peace, joy, and love, and we sort of privilege these words or these ideas during the season of Advent. And if you think about it, they stand at odds with the world we live in, do they not? And they stand at odds even with our experience of the world that we live in at times. I'd like to submit that Advent... And these ideas that are at the center of this story are like a beachhead, a beacon, a, a, a blinking light in a very dark landscape that say, this is not the end. Insert Mumford and Sons here. We find truth in interesting places, don't we? That this is not the end, but that there is another tale being told and that regardless of who or where it finds you, we all need it. Some of you came here this morning, and hope for you has been an anchor. It has been something that has kept you alive, figuratively, metaphorically, maybe literally. And for some of us, I wonder if hope doesn't need to encounter us this morning in a new and fresh way. God, uh, we, in so many ways, uh, come to this place uh, in this space this morning with uh, all kinds of different experiences and things on our plate. For some, uh, we just barely got in the door, and our kids are driving us crazy. For some, uh, we don't know where we're going to get a job or what's next. For some, we need you to heal. And so God, as we uh, collectively recognize that uh, maybe Heraclitus was right in some ways, that this is a difficult go, uh, we submit ourselves to the possibility that there is another story at work and that somehow in the person of Jesus there is a key uh, to a door that lets a lot of light in. Find us online 
at www.awakencommunity.com or on Facebook at www.facebook.com backslash awakencommunity or on Twitter at awakencommunity. See you next time.